Thanks, Rachel. Friends, uh, keep a Bible open at Luke 14. It's where we're up to as we're travelling week by week with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem where he will die for the sins of the world. Uh, And as Jesus travels this journey and we listen in and, as it were, walk with him down the road, he continues to confront and to challenge about the nature of his kingdom, the kingdom of which he is the eternal king, and uh, who is in the kingdom. Who are the people who would trust and follow him and therefore enjoy the feast of the eternal banquet at his right hand in his perfected future. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to look at this next bit together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he says uncomfortable things so that we might know the truth, so that we might know what life really is all about and that we might find life and hope in him. So please help us to see and to hear Jesus properly today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, back in the day when Copernicus started saying that, hey guys, I actually think the earth revolves around the sun, uh, not the other way round, it must have seemed a bit strange. Well, we know it seemed a bit strange because people hated him and uh, rejected his thesis. Uh, by saying the sun is at the centre, not the earth, it's a tough case to make because we see and we seem to experience the other way around, don't we? You wake up in the morning and you see the sun rising and you watch it travel across the sky during the day and then set at the... I don't know if I'm going in the right direction, but it doesn't matter. It sets over there. I'll have you know. Um... But, and so it's a, it's a tough case to ask, right? It, it, it requires to get on board with that sort of thinking a total change in how you view things, in how you view reality itself. And Jesus' revolution that he's leading in the world as the long-awaited saviour king, the Messiah of God, is a Copernican kind of revolution. It requires a complete change in the way that you view Reality, and more often than not, it's about viewing things in an upside-down kind of way. And the Copernican revolution when it comes to Jesus in his kingdom is, guess what? Newsflash, you're not at the centre of the universe. Jesus is. Newsflash, actually, you're not meant to be at the centre of even your own life. Jesus is. And what he continues to come up against week after week, moment after moment, step after step along this dusty road to Jerusalem, are more and more people who want to keep themselves at the centre of not only their life in this world, but their life in God's kingdom. And the challenge that Jesus keeps saying that if you exalt yourself, you are going to be humbled in a real and significant way. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. God will give you the life and hope that you so desperately need. And so as we kind of are confronted with this Copernican revolution today, as Jesus once again challenges us to think, uh, he is the king of God's kingdom. He is the sun around which our lives are meant to revolve, not the other way around. 
I want to ask us three questions from Luke 14. The question of why are you at the table, which is the question that Jesus poses to the Pharisees in verses 1 to 14. Uh, The question of will you be at the banquet, which is the challenge of verses 15 to 24. And is Jesus actually Lord today? Not in the sense of, is he enthroned in heaven and raised from the dead? Because that's definitely true. But have you set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart today? And that's the challenge of verses 25 to 35. Let's uh, jump in then and ask the question, why are you at the table where we see Jesus is heading uh, to the table of a Pharisee to have a meal at his house? And we know from the last uh, month or so that that's got trouble written all over it uh, because Jesus continues to have a confrontation with the Pharisees. They're the religious experts who have placed themselves at the very centre of religious life, held themselves up as the examples and the ones uh, who deserve to be sitting at the table with Jesus as opposed, as we'll see next week, to the tax collectors and sinners, to the scumbags of the world who don't deserve a seat, according to the Pharisees. And so Jesus is heading in and he's confronting them. And uh, it's helpful to realise that there's a controlling question that's kind of been swirling around our heads since last week, uh, which is chapter 13, verse 23, when someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, That's the question that's kind of echoed through for us into this week in chapter 14 as Jesus kind of gives the surprising answer. We heard last week that actually there's going to be lots of people who are going to be saved. They're going to come from east and west and north and south. People from all over belong to Jesus' eternal kingdom. And that's the picture we get, isn't it? At the end of the the Bible, in the book of Revelation, people, people from every tribe and nation and language will take their place at Jesus' eternal banquet table. And while people from north and south and east and west will come into Jesus' kingdom, the surprising thing maybe isn't the number, but who those people are. The kinds of people who take their place in Jesus' kingdom which might be a surprise to the religious among um, uh, the dinner guests at this Pharisee's house. Uh, Verses 1 to 4 kind of begin with this uh, scene where once again Jesus is healing someone on the Sabbath and he paints the Pharisees into a corner once again and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they remain silent because they realise either they can sound like heartless jerks, we don't want people to be healed, we don't think they deserve it, we don't like people, or they can sound like they don't really care about the law. No, you have to keep the Sabbath. And so they rightly work out we're in a lose-lose situation, best to keep our mouth shut. And so they sit there silently, but Jesus is going to make sure that they don't feel particularly comfortable as they sit there. Have a look at verse 7 with me. Remember the question, why is it that you're at the table. When he noticed how the guests 
pick the places of honour at the table, Jesus told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come in and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, right, he's told a parable, that's a veiled kind of parable, it's like, Let me tell you a story about a dinner that sounds a lot like the dinner we're having right here, right now. Right? It's a very thinly veiled parable. You guys know I'm talking about you, right? All you people who have thought, no, I deserve to be sitting at Jesus' table, at the most important places, at the places reserved for important guests of honour. That's me, right? I, I deserve to be seated at Jesus' table. Look at my religious credentials. Look at my extensive knowledge of the Bible. Look at my family background. Of course I ought to be here is the attitude that Jesus is putting his finger on. And the problem with that way of thinking once again, is that it requires a Copernican revolution. Because in Jesus' economy, in the economy of his kingdom, who are the honoured guests who ought to be sitting at places of provision and care? Who are the ones who ought to be exalted at his table? Well, it's there in verse 13. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. It's all those who are on the fringes, all those who know they have nothing to bring to the table, all those who know they can't bring a plate to contribute to the meal, They've got nothing in their back pocket to pay the person who's put on the meal. They don't have the credentials that usually places someone in a position of honour and privilege. And it's people like that who recognise they have nothing in their hands to bring to Jesus who really will be in the positions of honour and privilege in his kingdom. In Jesus' economy, you don't invite your friends and your family, your rich neighbours. They might bring a nice bottle of wine. People who might pay you back or invite you onto their yacht It's the attitude of what can I get from this situation that Jesus is again putting his finger in and pushing on the bruise. Verse 14, 
because the very nature of his kingdom and the very nature of Jesus' table is not one where people come with their hands full of stuff to say, this is what I bring, these are my credentials, this is what I can contribute, this is why I deserve to be here, this is why that seat has my name on it. But the whole point of Jesus' kingdom and the way his economy works and the way that you find yourself seated at his table is when you come with empty hands and a humble heart. One that recognises, yeah, actually, I don't deserve to be here and I can't bring anything and there's nothing in my pockets that are going to make up for this meal or going to make me worthy of sitting next to Jesus at his table. And it's that kind of humility, it's that kind of faith, it's that kind of empty-handed trust and acceptance of what Jesus is doing and will do when he dies for the sins of the world. That says, I'm not the centre of this and there's nothing about me that makes me worthy or acceptable. But Jesus' invitation is, please come and sit at my table for all eternity. So the why are you at the table? Are you at the table because you think you deserve to be there? Because you think, of course Jesus wants me on his team and at his table? Because you think you've earned your, your place in his kingdom? Because you think your credentials kind of meet the criteria? Or have you come with the empty hands of faith? that say, I don't deserve to be here. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Why are you at the table? Second question, will you be at the banquet? And once again, Jesus um, confronts his listeners at this table about the eternal banquet, the great banquet of heaven having kind of rebuked them for all being there and the invitations that they gave out, there's again that picture of silence at the dinner table. You know how over the years people seem to love to invite Jesus to hypothetical dinner parties? If you could invite people from history to dinner, who would you invite? I'd invite Jesus and JFK and someone else, you know. When you read the Gospel accounts, Jesus doesn't make a very comfortable dinner guest. Inviting Jesus to dinner is inviting a lot of awkward silences. And a lot of those moments, you know when you're sitting at a dinner table and someone ventures into a topic or an issue that you really wish they wouldn't? And like you sit there uncomfortably and you can feel your heartbeat in your earlobes and you're kind of trying to think, what do I say at this point? Well, that's our friend in verse 15. And everyone's looking around thinking someone say something to kind of break this awkward silence This mate, he steps up, verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, well, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Yes, indeed, everybody says. Thank you for breaking the awkward silence. Blessed is the one who will feast in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, the uncomfortable dinner guest, won't let that pass either. 
And so there's another bruise on their religious egos that he puts his thumb on and presses a bit harder. Have a look with me at verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another have said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, I can't come. Uh, The point of those excuses is that they're totally excuses. They're not good reasons to have rejected an invitation to a wedding banquet that you've probably already said that you're coming to. It's like when you've sent out the initial save the date, someone says, I'll be there, right? And then when you get the invitation, they say, actually, I got married. It's like, really? You all of a sudden got married. Or you all of a sudden bought a field, but you hadn't even inspected it. Or you all of a sudden bought a a team of oxen and you haven't tried them out. They could be a dud. People don't do these things. These are really lame excuses that Jesus is highlighting is kind of like the way he has been received by the Pharisees and the religious experts. Those who knew the wedding banquet was coming. Those who knew God's Messiah was on his way, that the long-awaited Saviour King would step into the world to renew all things and to bring God's kingdom into existence. And when he arrived, the religious leaders say, oh, actually, we're just going to keep doing what we were doing. Or you're not as impressive as we thought you might be, and so we're going to just hang out for something better. We're going to wait for a better offer of a better Messiah who's a bit more impressive and maybe doesn't kind of put his finger on our bruises so much. Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy and the foolishness of making lame excuses for rejecting him as king and as saviour. And so what does the man who prepares the banquet do? What would God do when his saviour king is being rejected by those who should have known better? And his invitation to the banquet of heaven is being trodden on and treated like that's not very important. I've got better things to do. It's really not worth it. The servant came back, verse 21, said, reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and quickly and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. There's still room. The master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not even one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. 
amazing, isn't it? How Jesus puts his finger on the attitude of so many in our world who see everything else in our lives, everything else this world has to offer as more important, as more urgent, as more worthy of our investment and our time than the single-minded pursuit of knowing our Creator and our Saviour and being found as one who belongs to his eternal kingdom. We muck around, underestimating the impact of sin. We muck around thinking that we can mask the fact that we live under the shadow of death, pretend like it doesn't exist, instead of putting our time and our energy, our effort, making it our single-minded pursuit and priority to be someone who's accepted Jesus' invitation to life and hope that's found in him. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't then add any extra explanation at the end of that story? doesn't add an extra application about who's in and who's out. He leaves it open as if to say, will you receive the invitation to God's eternal banquet? Recognising there's no other event in your life, there's no other pursuit in your calendar, there's no other investment in this world that is more important than being right with God and doing business with Jesus. And the reality is, if you say to God, I'm not ready, if you say to God, not today, thank you very much, if you say to God, can you put your banquet on another day, I already have a pretty full calendar, It's not going to change things. You can't come later after you've done your other things. As we heard last week, the door is narrow and it's closing. We work according to God's timetable and his kingdom and now is the time for responding to Jesus. God will fill his banquet. He extends invitations to anyone who can hear. The invitation goes far and wide. It crosses cultures. It crosses social and economic boundaries. It goes to people who can't move for themselves. It goes for people who can't look after themselves. It goes to people who are far and wide and the picture is that God will kick in your door and drag people to fill his banquet. But the challenge is, will you respond with a yes, Lord? I will come to your banquet.
I'll put aside everything else to make sure priority one is being right with God and that Jesus is Lord, not just of the universe, but of your heart and your life. That's Jesus' final challenge from verse 25. He turns away from the Pharisees who in a sense have rejected Jesus' invitation to his eternal banquet because they've placed themselves at the centre of everything and they've come with full hands and what they think are impressive credentials. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's a challenging challenge. It's a challenging word, isn't it, from Jesus? that reinforces for us that knowing him and being a disciple, someone who learns and listens and follows Jesus, that it's not something that you put on your bucket list that you'll get around to at some point. It's not one of the things that you enjoy doing in this world, but it's the worldview-defining change of allegiance and identity and reality that I'm not at the centre of everything and even my own life, but Jesus is. And everything I am and everything I have and whatever I do and what I love and what I want for in this life and what I want for my children, what I pray for, what I pursue, what I seek, centres on him, revolves around him. It's a total realignment of your identity and your allegiance. And it sounds harsh, doesn't it, that Jesus says this, that you should hate your father and mother and your children and your brothers and sisters and even your own life. It's not hate in a kind of a despise those things because that would make a very confusing thing out of the baptism we saw this morning, wouldn't it? That says Evelyn is valuable and we love her and her grandparents who are here and her parents and her godparents that that's a valuable, important thing. Should hate her? No. But in a sense, what Tom and Shannon have done today in bringing Evelyn for baptism is a reflection of what Jesus is saying. That the passion and the pursuit and the very centre of what you should want for your children is him above all else that that is the focus and that is the energy and that is the centre of life and of hope and of eternity. Jesus' challenge is that this requires not only the empty hands and the humble hearts that rely upon him, but like planning to go to battle or planning to build a skyscraper you don't make it up as you go along it's not something that you do on a whim 
Uh, it's not something that you do without counting the cost. To follow Jesus is to put aside your selfish desires, to die to yourself, to your self-centered plans and priorities, and to live for his kingdom. And what it means in verse 27 is that you will die to yourself each day as you take up your cross, an instrument of death, to follow Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. It's costly. It's important. He's not mucking around. But when you consider what that eternal wedding banquet of heaven means, we ought to be reminded that it's totally worth it. To lose everything and to gain Jesus is a good deal. To gain the whole world, Jesus says, but to forfeit your soul. That doesn't benefit you at all. To sit at Jesus' wedding banquet is to sit in that moment when death is finished, when every tear is wiped away, when eternal rest and satisfaction, provision and heart-satisfying joy will be the heartbeat of eternity. So the challenge today is, why are you at the table? It's because you think you deserve to be there or you've come with empty hands and humble hearts. Will you be at the banquet? Have you accepted Jesus' invitation? Or do you think there's more important things to be doing this morning? And is Jesus Lord not just of the universe, because he is, but is he Lord of your life and your heart today? Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you once again for Jesus and pray that we would be those people this morning who accept his invitation that is written in his blood that says we can come and find life and hope, forgiveness and peace, joy and eternal satisfaction in his presence forever because he is the saviour and the king that we so desperately need and you've so graciously provided. Please help us to set aside every other distraction and every other priority in comparison to following Jesus. And may we do so trusting not in our own credentials, or our own history, or in our own resources, but with empty hands and with humble hearts, following him with everything that we are. And we pray this for his sake. 
Amen.